The term return on investment means one thing to CFOs, but takes on a different meaning for CIOs, where ROI is about return on innovation. Author and advisor Jeffrey Moore explains why both are needed at the HP Technology at Work conference. Uh, so I do want to give you a perspective. I want to give you a perspective on this intersection of business outcomes and technology investments. Looking at it through the lens of innovation, which has sort of been my life's work. And I want to, you know, it's no secret that businesses have to innovate in order to succeed. The only question is how good are we going to be at our innovations? And I want to share with you some of the lessons that we've been learning in, in Silicon Valley and with clients around the world around this issue of innovation and how, how IT in particular can be the lever that, that takes an innovation initiative over the top. So these are four topics I want to share with you. This first one, return on innovation, this keeps CEOs up at night. You know, the CFO cares about ROI as return on investment. But the CEO is saying, look, I have to take my company to a new level. And that's return on innovation. And the thing that scares the CEO the most is this scenario right here, where a company spends its innovation budget but in fact does not get any competitive differentiation. And sadly, and maybe a little surprisingly, this happens more often than you might think. Because the way in which innovation has to happen, it tends to bubble up from the bottom. And unless there's some really strong shaping function from the top, everybody will innovate locally. And locally, they'll do something pretty wonderful. But like all these different vectors, they don't add up to, to anything that is globally wonderful. And so what happens is the competitors can match these, the, these innovations because the company hasn't done anything that is unmatchable. If you think about what the company wants to do, the company wants to get an escape from the norms of its competitive set. As long as your offers are the, more or less the same as your competitors' offers, then you have no bargaining power. Now, you're still in business, but you begin to see revenues edging off, profit margins come under a great deal of pressure, investors start getting restless, all the kinds of things that happen when a company has to continually, essentially, battle for margins against its direct competitors. And with the globalized economy, we have a lot of low-cost competitors coming in at the bottom of our markets, this gets even more and more uh, serious. And so every so often we see companies who get escape from the competitive set. Every sponsor of this, of this show has done this at least once, some of them more than once in their history. So whether we're talking about an Oracle or an SAP or a Microsoft or an Intel or an AMD or a Citrix, or whomever the sponsors are, right, they've done this at least once iPod right now is kind of a spectacular example in consumer electronics of somebody who's escaped the competitive set. The question is, what does it take, and how would your company be able to use technology to create this? And we call this, this arrow of escape core. And what we mean by core is that vector of innovation that your company will pursue so far with such commitment that your competitors either cannot or will not copy you, at which point you achieve separation. And that, that declaring core is the single most important job for a CEO or any business leader to do. 
Because once core is declared, everybody else in the company can understand, ah, that is the thing that I am supposed to amplify. That's where we're trying to go. And conversely, every other vector of innovation is context. It's important. If we do not do anything in the area, we will lose. But it is not where we are trying to be different. Here we are trying to be good enough or the same in order to save resources because on our core vector, we want to go beyond, beyond good. Now, this use of core is not the same as core competence. Core competence is what companies are really good at. And probably at one time, your core competence was your core, and that was a very happy time. But in a competitive marketplace, sooner or later, your competitors catch up. And then what is still your core competence is no longer core, meaning it's no longer unmatchable. And that's a very difficult situation for a company to be in, and we'll talk about how to deal with that in a minute. So core competence is what you're good at. Core is what is unmatchable. Core business is also a different idea. Core business is where you make most of your revenue. But also, in a mature, established enterprise, as many of you come from, your core business is typically the part that's becoming most commoditized. It's the part where you have the least differentiation. And so you have to work to get beyond your core business into new businesses to find the competitive advantage that, that business requires in order to create the kinds of social returns and economic returns that, that we all want. So when you're looking at this idea of innovation, I want you to keep this pie chart in mind. And I want you to take this pie chart back to your business colleagues and say, look, we're going to talk about business outcomes, right? What business outcome do we want? Are we going to spend money to differentiate? Because if that's what we're going to do, I'm going to take a lot of risk. I'm going to take this thing very, very, very far because I don't want any of our competitors to be able to do what we're going to do. Conversely, maybe all we need to do is to neutralize. Maybe what's happened is a competitor has gotten ahead. Motorola has come out with a thin phone. I'm Nokia. I don't need to beat Motorola. I just need to get thinner, right? So my goal would be to neutralize a competitive advantage of somebody else, not differentiate. S takes innovation, but not as much money, because you're kind of copying. You're not breaking new ground. And then the third one is productivity, which is, hey, I'm not even going to change anything except I'm going to do it better, faster, and cheaper. That'll save some money, which I can spend someplace else or turn into profit. So there are three goals of an innovation investment, differentiation, neutralization, and productivity. But they require very different levels of investment because they have very different levels of reward. Now, that said, there are two bad things that can happen from innovation. One is you can fail, and that's just part of the deal. Part of innovating is taking risk. Part of taking risk is not everything works. You don't want to be spectacular at failing, but you know a few failures, probably the right, the, the right sign. Right? The thing that drives CEOs crazy is waste. And that is, waste comes from just the sort of things we were talking about. A differentiation project that didn't go far enough. right? a neutralization project that actually went too far, or a productivity project that didn't return very much productivity. So use, but I want you to use these three, uh, these three, this pie chart because as an IT professional, depending on which 
piece of pie the management team set, uh, sets the business outcome at, you're going to invest very differently. If you're going to, if, if, it, if this is differentiation, you're going to take a lot of risk with IT. You're going to, you're going to be an early adopter of technologies that have not yet been proven because you want to separate your company from its direct competitors and you'll take chances to do that even if that has some failed attempts but if the goal is simply to catch up or the goal is simply to improve productivity you will not take risk you will do the most prudent practical things as as as, as cost effectively as you possibly can and so you just have to know which one we're doing and this blurring of the boundaries is, what is, is the dangerous thing that you need to avoid. You need to work with your colleagues to avoid. And the place where it often happens, and I'll just give you as a kind of a clue, is often we say, well, the users should have the budgets of the IT. They should approve the IT expenditures because, after all, it's their money. And sometimes when users get their money, they want to spend it their way, and they end up spending too much money on the wrong things. And you have to step up and say, no, that's not right. That's not right. And, and this diagram, I think, can help you do that. So I encourage you to use this return on innovation idea as a way to have better conversations with your business colleagues about the IT investments you're making on their behalf. The second idea is then innovation strategy. And it's kind of an extension of that blue pie part, part of the pie chart, the differentiation part. How is our company going to get separation from our competitive set? That's the question that everybody in the company really is looking for the answer to. And when we think about that, we know it's going to come from some investment in innovation. But one of the things we had to learn in Silicon Valley, we always thought innovation was the stuff on the left side of this curve. That to be truly innovative, you had to be disruptive. You had to create a whole new, you had to be a Google or an eBay or an Amazon or, you know, you had to be an Intel back in the 80s and a Microsoft or an Oracle. You had, you had to break things apart and start whole new categories. And by the way, it's a terrific form of innovation. And there's lots of, form, lots of innovation in that part of the curve. But let's not kid ourselves. Mature markets require just as much innovation. It's just of a different kind. And in fact, markets that are decaying also require innovation, but that's also of a different kind. And so the work that my colleagues and I have done around innovation is we've sort of taken a bunch of these vectors of innovation and we've put them into four buckets, four, four major groups. The product leadership innovation types, the customer intimacy types, the operational excellence types, and the category renewal types. And underneath those buckets, there are many types of innovation in each, in, each, in each zone. But the key point I want to make with you right now is every zone requires innovation that can set you genuinely apart from the competitor. And every one of those types of innovation can then be leveraged by an IT investment. Now, that's a very, very long story to tell, and I'm going to try to tell it with just one slide. So just to give you a flavor of what we're talking about here. If you're in a growth market, product leadership is a very good uh, type of uh, zone of innovation to work in because you, 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 growth markets respond very well to the next new product, and product launches capture market share in growth markets. By the way, they don't in mature markets anywhere near as well. So product leadership is mostly good for growth markets. But think of the kind of things where IT, and by the way, IT has had a very tough time 
making a contribution to product leadership innovation strategies. It's really odd, but the engineers that design all the products that we live with here don't get much help from IT. In fact, sometimes they don't want much help from IT, but that's a separate story, right? But some of the things that we're seeing today, as the IP network becomes the new standard, there's an opportunity to do collaboration in a way that has never been done before. And combine that with the fact that we're all trying to go global, both to tap into talent pools around the world and to tap into markets around the world. And all of a sudden, this cycle time between getting a product started and then into the second design and the third prototype and getting it through the cycle over and over again is requiring, across time zones, is requiring lots and lots of collaboration. It's very, very painful. And so all these technologies around voice and this halo uh, uh, sort of telepresence thing that HP's got going, wikis, video, everything like that. Really, if you're, if you're in a product leadership company, this is a place for you to be taking chances and spending money. And, and also around simulation, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, both for the product and then test simulations, all those kinds of areas. So this is where you would spend money. Ten years ago, you would have bought silicon graphics computers to do this. Now I think you're going to be buying much more these high-bandwidth, highly communicative computers. Still a lot of simulation. In the customer intimacy zone, it's not so much about product leadership. It's not really about the product at all. It's about the customer. It's about the customer's experience of the product. And what we're seeing, particularly in the high-volume industries, is how important it is to control that experience. Right now, two of the great leaders of the American economy are kind of sucking wind right now. Walmart and Dell. Both had very, very, very strong runs. But both of them have run into the customer intimacy zone. And the customer has said, yes, you're low cost, but you know what? The experience isn't good enough. And so, so, so they have to at least neutralize, right? But then there are other companies like Apple and, 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 and Amazon who have, who have really stepped up to saying, we're going to be better than good in customer intimacy. And what are they doing? They're spending money on personalization, this ability to actually modify a transaction while it is happening. This is what we're going to try to do on our cell phones coming forward as well, which requires investments in huge things like, like NeoView, you know, all, all, this ability to sort of data mine and then abstract, abstract the, uh, the, the micro segments and then apply them in real time. It's a whole new, the notion that we could actually close the loop during the transaction and modify it, it's a very, very exciting idea, okay? But it, it, it takes high-risk technology investments, you know? So you wouldn't do this if you said, look, I just need to be good enough at customer intimacy. This is not what Walmart would do. This is not what Dell would do. But this is what somebody would do who said, I am going to set the bar where nobody else has come before. I'm going to re-establish what greatness looks like. That's what you do. If you're in the operational excellence zone, and you say, no, what I'm really all about is just taking enormous costs out of a fairly complex system, you know, th then you're going to make a, a completely different set of investments. Now, in, in an operational excellence point of view, everything is a process. And if you've ever been to a Six Sigma class, you find out, Life is a process, your marriage is a process, your kids are a process, you're a process. You know, I mean, everything's a process, right? So you start saying, look, I need to be able to continually abstract the process and adapt the systems. This is where adaptive infrastructure becomes so important. Because if you, if, let me give you the opposite. This is where non-adaptive infrastructure is so painful. 
when you're locked into legacy systems and the processes want to change and you can't move the IT, underlying IT infrastructure, and so you're just jam stuck. You know, most of us in this room are, are, are living on the back half of what I would call the client server systems era. We, we went through hell to get these systems in. And they did a lot of good for us, particularly inside our corporations. But what's happening now is business is moving outside of our corporations. The, the amount of partnering, the amount of, the amount of interactive supply chains that we're involved with is just enormous. And the problem is the legacy infrastructure can't adapt fast enough. So if you're going to be a leader in next generation operational excellence, which I submit to you means that you are going to be the most effective company in the world at using other people's money to build your stuff. You're going to get more and more done outside of your company so you can have more and more of your time on core because they're doing all your context for you. If you're going to be that company, you are going to need an adaptive infrastructure that, a lot, that leverages things like services-oriented architecture and, and all these, these, these next-generation technologies that let you reach out. But if you just need to be good enough at operational excellence, not now, right? You can wait, right? That's what this, this, this chart's about. Don't try to do all three of these things. Pick one that you're going to go. And finally, suppose you're in a category that's being really disrupted. Suppose you're in a newspaper business. It's a tough business to be in. Suppose you're in the film business. That's a pretty tough business to be in. The travel business. That's a hard business to be in these days. Okay? You, you've got a great, you're a Kodak. You have this wonderful brand, Fuji, Nikon. But, 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 but the world's going someplace else. So what are you going to do? How are you going to renew yourself? And you're going to renew yourself through some combination of taking your existing resources and buying your way into new businesses. Think about how General Electric every decade reinvents itself by doing M&A. Or you're going to find something in your laboratories that you're going to take out and, and, and start a, you know, a completely new, new wing to your, to your business going, going forward. And so if you think about the kinds of IT things here, in an M&A-enabled world, fast ERP integration is just critical. And again, if you're stuck with non-adaptive infrastructure, it's really, really painful going forward. Okay? And if you're going to do this skunk works kind of thing, you, gotta have fines, you, have, you can't have the kind of infrastructure that says everything in our company has to be managed exactly the way everything else is. Can't do it that way. So I just want to give you a flavor that IT can be a very powerful lever. You wouldn't experiment and do pilots with all four of these. You'd want to be aligned with your, your colleagues saying, we know which way we're going, and we, and, we want, and we want to go, we're going to pick the one area where it's going to make the most difference, and there we're going to really, really take the world on. Now, having said that, how are we going to pay for it? Most of us are in the IT organizations I've spent time with over the last seven years. When they go to the CFO and the CEO and ask for more money, it's a somewhat painful conversation. Sometimes the CFO says, actually, I was going to ask you for more money. Okay? And so we have this discussion of how do you fund innovation going forward? Well, here's, here's, here's the, the, the idea. The idea is there's actually a lot of trapped resources, both inside IT, but more importantly, in the corporation, but that could be freed by IT, that we're going to use to fund the innovation. So you say, well, where are all these resources getting trapped? And what happens is, you know, we're in these competitive economies, we're fighting off our, our competitors, we're trying to differentiate every day, 
But our competitors are neutralizing our differentiation. So we're trying to climb an escalator, and, and, and we, do, we invest in all these IT things that are very wonderful, but you know, after a while, our core is no longer core. And so what happens is, you see from this, from this sort of cascade here, that every one of those things at one time was differentiating. Online transaction processing, that was a very big deal in the late 70s. You were a differentiated company if you did that then, not now. Same thing with reporting and analytics, you know, personal computers when they came in, visualization, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, you look at one of these charts and you think, wow, what's next? I mean, we've got to continually look for what's next. All I can tell you is don't worry about the top of the escalator. It's coming. I have no idea what it is, but it's coming. Worry about the bottom of the escalator. The problem is how do you get out of doing things that no longer differentiate you? Because if you can't, if you say, look, I have to do everything, what happens to the resource profile in your company is it starts when you're, when you're in your early part of your company's history with a heavy emphasis on highly differentiating capabilities. But over time, as more and more things fall to the bottom of the escalator, you still invest in new things. But as a percentage of resources, a higher and higher percentage of resources are doing things that are context, not core. Meaning, they're very important, but they don't differentiate. So when you look at that, and you look at how, gosh, we've got 85 cents of every dollar. That's a third world currency, by the way, the dollar. The euro, 85 cents of every euro, there's a real currency, um, is going to maintenance, not to new stuff. It's going to the red, not the green. Now, I, I want to suggest to you that that budget is potentially a source of resources. It's a little bit like body fat, you know? We're supposed to have, and America's getting a little bit obsessed about its obesity, worrying about body fat, but you know what? Fat is calories. This is energy if we can actually get on the treadmill and exercise, right? So that's the goal. And Germany does not make it easy. The food here does not make this easy. Okay, but, but, but here's the goal. I need to extract resources from context to repurpose for core. So I look at that problem, and I say, this is what I would like to have happen. What I would like to have happen is I, I've separated the world into core and context. So the differentiated and the non-differentiating. There's one other separation that's important for me to keep in mind. Is this mission critical or not mission critical? And just as a simple way of thinking of mission critical, does this show up on my financial report? If I, if I mess this thing up, would I have to report it to the investors? And that's a good way to know it's mission critical. Otherwise, maybe it's not so material. So here's, here's how I would like to invest my, my resources, ideally. I would like to invent things that are very different, core, but they're not yet material, they're not yet mission critical. They're incubated, they're in a skunk works, I'm piloting it with a few people. But when it works, then I really do wanna make a big bet. And I'm gonna deploy that at scale, and this is the most exciting time to be part of your company, because you have a great offer and everybody wants it, and you are just taking, taking no prisoners. It's a very exciting time. Now that said, your competitors will see you do this, and they will immediately try to copy you or neutralize you or somehow reduce your impact. Hopefully it will take them a very, very long time. But eventually they'll succeed. So eventually, that same business, now it's become a very big business, 
is no longer as differentiated. It's become context, which means I, I have a lot of revenue, but I'm not making a lot of profit anymore. So what I'd like to do is I would like to manage my way out of that business, take the savings, and invest it in a new business. This is portfolio management. It's a pretty sound idea. However, there are two things that have made this traditionally hard to do, and if we don't pay attention to both of them, we're in trouble. So the last two things I want to share with you are the two hurdles you have to overcome to make this, this system work. The first one is you know, this issue of risk. And, and what happens is you say, look, I get it. I'm supposed to spend my resources on things that differentiate. Okay. But come on, we have this huge risk exposure, and so I have to put very good people wherever I have very high risk. So, okay, if there's no risk and no differentiation, there's no people, I don't care. If I'm spending money in core, whether it's in non-mission critical or in mission critical, I don't care, that's where I want to spend money. The problem, child, is the upper right-hand quadrant, where I have very high-risk exposures, but I don't earn very, very good returns. What am I going to do about that? And what happens is, instead of people being able to manage down their commitments there, they end up actually increasing their commitments there. They say, look, you know, I've got this is a big piece of my business. We're losing ground here. I'm going to spend more money on salespeople. I'm going to put more into marketing. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do, I, I'm going to discount even more. I'm spending more time here. So instead of offloading, I'm actually onloading. And so you see these bigger companies in these big categories get more and more stuck on the right side of these diagrams. And you say to yourself, well, no wonder big companies can't innovate because they're stuck on the, this side. It turns out it's not true. Big companies always innovate. They have very large R&D budgets and they spend them. The problem they have is when they want to go to deploy that next generation of innovation, there's nobody there to deploy it. And the reason there's nobody there to deploy it is they're all stuck trying to prop up the existing business model. And you hear this same story, whether it's from sales or manufacturing or services or anybody. I love your new thing. But it's only a 20 to $30 million business, and I have billion-dollar quotas to meet on this side of the... I cannot give you people. There's just not... An, I can't do it. And so we have this horrible thing that happens where, where we get stuck on the right side, and, and, more, and we keep on trying to innovate, but we can't get anything into the next generation. And the reason why is because the key leadership is stuck in that upper right-hand quadrant. So what's the job? The job is to get it unstuck. The job is to take mission-critical work that is no longer differentiating and attack it. And attack it with a very Six Sigma sort of idea. Okay? So the first thing you do with mission-critical work when you realize it doesn't differentiate is stop doing it in seven different places. Centralize and standardize. Take it away from the existing leadership team who's heavily committed to doing the next generation, who's promised customer after customer, improvement after improvement. No, we're not going to do that. We're re-centralizing it under a very strong leadership, and we're going to standardize. And you then have to kind of talk your way through that with your key, your key customer constituencies. Once it's centralized and standardized, you've already reduced a bunch of the risk. Because you're now not maintaining 12 versions of something. So, so, so we did this with our data centers. Right? You've, you've done this inside IT. The idea is your company needs to do it. 
Okay, it's just the same thing as virtualizing, as virtualizing a data center. Centralized, standardized, then you can modularize and optimize. Now you can, you, can, you can say, hey, some of these processes are just too hard to modify. We're not going to do that. But these other ones, we can smash together. We can improve. We can, we, we, can, we can get more and more efficiencies. I can free up more people to go back to deploy the next generation of innovation. Eventually, I would like to outsource this work. But when I outsource this work, I can't just give it to somebody blindly. I have to instrument it so that I have visibility and control because it's mission critical. And the only reason I want to give it away, it's not for low cost, I just need leadership people. I can't afford to spend my time, my talent, and my management attention on something that doesn't create a return. So I've got to get it out of my company. This is, this is how, and by the way, this is what the IT community has done in advance of your colleagues. You've all done versions of this. You have outsourced portions of your infrastructure. You've outsourced portions of your application. You've outsourced all kinds of things. You, but you didn't do it by jumping from one to six. You can't just centralize and outsource. Or if you have, you have some very sad stories to tell, right? Centralize, then standardize, then modularize, then optimize, then instrument, then outsource, okay? And outsourcers in the room, if you will reach back up that ladder, you can, you can actually get business earlier in the life cycle, but only by earning it. Only by earning it. Okay. Now, from an IT perspective, if you look at this, the centralized and standardized, the great act of centralization and standardization in the last 20 years was the client-server ERP packaged applications. And by ERP, I mean it in the biggest sense. So I mean the PeopleSoft and the Siebel's and the, and the SAP's and the Oracle's and the, you know, the I2's and the Manugistics and, you know, all, a lot. But none of those systems gave competitive advantage. Why? Because your competitor bought the same system, right? It wasn't to make you have more core. It was to get resources out of context so that you could spend those resources someplace else on core. Modularization and optimization, this is where you need to have the adaptive infrastructure. This is where you do the analytics and the process analysis. This is where you, you continually apply this lean, Six Sigma kind of a, a, a philosophy to your business, okay, to the context part of your business. Mission critical, context. And then the instrumenting and the outsourcing. And we still need work here. There's more work to do in instrumenting. We, we, are, we are going to this globalized model, but we're flying blind way too often. There's not enough investment here. It's ironic. By the way, this is where HP started 55 years ago. This is what Packard and Hewlett invented, monitoring instruments, right? I mean, this is, we're going to get back to our roots here in order to make this thing work. Okay, the final thing I want to share with you is the second hurdle in making this innovation, life cycle of innovation work. And it has to do with the workforce. Because you look at this model and you say, you know what, if all we're talking about is moving money, there's no, there's no problem with this model. But what happens when you're trying to move people? And what you discover is the person who has just finished optimizing the tasks that you're now going to outsource normally does not have the skill profile of the person that you're looking to hire into the brand new thing at the other, on the other side. I have to tell you, my, my, I came into business through the human resource function. I desperately wanted this not to be true. And for any individual, it probably isn't true. I think any individual can reinvent themselves. But as a population, 
This is true. And the problem is, if you can't, we can't th come up with a creative solution to this thing, why would any workforce follow us? They'd be nuts to, right? In fact, how could we look ourselves in the face as managers and say we are stewards of the workforce if what we're doing is handing out offer letters on the left and pink slips on the right? right? It's just wrong. So as we were working with our clients, we got some great help here. One client in particular said to me, he said, Jeff, you know, okay, I get it. I can't use somebody in quadrant four and quadrant one, I'll maybe occasionally, but not very often. But you know what? I think I could reuse them in quadrant three. And if I did that, I could free somebody up in quadrant three to go back to quadrant two. And I could free somebody up in quadrant two to go back to quadrant one. So I can get resources back to the beginning of this thing. I just have to go counterclockwise, right? And what that means is the people on the right of this diagram, they're the optimizers. They're the people that take context work and take it through the six levers. And the first time they do it, they're probably doing it to a system or a work process that they have worked in for much of their lives. But after they're done, after they've done centralized, standardized, modularized, optimized, instrument, and outsource, instead of saying goodbye, say, no, no, come back. Because although we're not going to need your task expertise in the work we outsourced, you just went through a six levers optimization exercise. We desperately need that in our company. We've got all this resource stuck in the upper right-hand quadrant. Come back and help us optimize something else and do it again and again. You have lifetime employment because the bottom of the escalator is littered with trapped resources. We need help, right? By the way, when you do that, you free up the deployers. Now, the deployers don't care if anything is core context. They just care that it's mission critical, which means to them, I'm taking on a responsibility and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it. I'm, I'm, I have a sales quota, I'm gonna make quota. I'm gonna go to club. You know, I have, I have a project, it's gonna come in on time. It's gonna come in on budget, it's gonna come in on spec. I'm gonna do stuff, okay? Deployers are kind of like the heroes of our, of, our, of our business. And when I get a deployer back, that frees up the third ones who we call the inventors. The people who are frankly a bit weird, right? That's what makes them good. But they're strange, and whenever you have an inventor who's doing something mission critical, you should be very worried, right? So the idea of getting them back down to that bottom quadrant is like, yes, 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 that's very good, very good. So let me show you how, the, how this flow works. The challenge is to get that yellow sun back to the, to the other side of the diagram. And the problem is it's a deployer and the deployer won't let go of things easily. So executive has to intervene and say, look, stop. We're no longer getting enough differentiation for this to manage it the way you manage things as a deployer. We're taking this responsibility away from you and we're giving it to an optimizer and an optimization team. And the deployer will resist that like mad. But the, you, but the executive must intervene and make the handoff. When the handoff is made, the optimizing team will then start the six levers process and simultaneously with that, the deployer needs to be reassigned to come over to the other side of the diagram and pick up the next generation of invention. This is another handoff and it's also a problem. The problem with this handoff is the inventor thought the invention was done about the time they shipped the second demo, right? It's done, right? And the deployer thinks something is done when it's about a $50 million business and it's about ready to scale, right? So 
demos, $50 million gap, right? So, so the handoff here, the executive handoff has got to be, look, we have a standard for this handoff called dun-dun. Dun-dun means the inventor says it's done and the deployer says it's done. Then it's dun-dun, okay? Until it's dun-dun, you're not going anywhere, right? But once it is dun-dun, then the deployer can, can take this thing out and, and, and make the kind of impact that it was all about. The inventor gets to go back and start whatever next new thing they have on their mind. And then, hopefully, you know, not too soon, but eventually, we know that the competitive markets will catch up from us and we're going to have to do this thing all over again. Now, the key takeaway from this diagram, we always thought inv innovation was the green oval. That invention equaled innovation. What we've learned about innovation is that innovation is a conveyor belt that is going through this system. And that in fact, your innovation success is gated by your slowest gear. Whichever gear turns the least smoothly in your organization, that's the gear that is gating your ability to innovate. So it might be invention, but it easily could be deployment. And in case of Silicon Valley these days, it's almost always in, uh, optimization. Okay. So you've got to get better at your slowest gear. So the implications for this, in terms of that uh, we all have resources to manage, as, as you're thinking about your roles within IT, as you're thinking about the people you support in, in, your, in your line of business organizations, a culture of innovation focuses on role expertise before task expertise. Inventor, deployer, optimizer, right? Yes, you have task expertise. Yes, it's important, but it's subordinate to role, okay? So be cautious about asking people to change roles. So, you know, for somebody who wants to be the CEO, they probably should try all three roles, right? But for a lot of folks in life, one role's enough. But every role can build a future for everyone, for, for, for a person in that role, provided that you keep that conveyor belt m moving. So just to kind of recap, and then I'm gonna turn this thing back over to Wolfram. I wanted to give you a perspective on the relationship between business outcomes and IT investments. Looking at it through the lens of innovation. So the first piece of that lens is return on innovation. So return on innovation, are we doing a differentiation project, a neutralization project, or a productivity project? Pick one of those three outcomes because I'm going to invest at three very different levels. Secondly, with respect to our differentiation strategy, we do need to get our team aligned on what's core. This isn't something that you can declare unilaterally. The IT function does not have permission to declare core. It's ultimately the responsibility of the line of business executive, but you can at least hold up your hand and say, I don't see our core yet. Anybody else? Maybe I'm the slow one. Let's core, right? And you can just keep raising your hand until the, the company steps up to saying, this is where we are going to be unmatchable. And then the funding strategy, extracting resources. For the last seven years, we've been taking it out of IT's hide. There's not a lot of hide left, right? Now I think it's about helping the rest of the organization leverage IT to take it out of their trapped resources hide, right? And then this building a culture of innovation, both in the company at large, but also in, within IT in particular so that we can, we, we can repurpose folks. So those are four ideas to give you a perspective. I want to close this and just say thank you very much. Enjoyed having a chance to talk with you.